Well, good evening. You enjoying your blanket? Are you enjoying your blanket? Amen. Hey, we're so grateful to have you here tonight. Um, welcome to Riverbank Community Church. Um, we, have, we are grateful to have you here worshiping with us tonight on Good Friday. Tonight, with awe and with reverence, we're going to remember and reflect on what Christ did, what he accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago. And we're going to reflect on the work of Christ by reading Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 49 together. So if you see, if you uh, take your worship guide, everyone should have a worship guide. And in your worship guide, you will notice that Luke chapter 23 is split into six different sections. So tonight we're going to have a pastor read each one of those sections and then follow it by a sermonette, a five-minute sermonette specifically. And after each sermonette, we're going to pause, we're going to reflect on what we heard, we're going to reflect on that text, and then we're going to come and we're going to sing and worship together. So let's begin our night of worship together by praying. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the miraculous work of Christ. Thank you that over 2,000 years ago, you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Help us, Lord, to worship you now. Help us to be grateful and to worship you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help us not to be distracted with the conditions around us, but help us to remember our Savior that was likely cold on a cross, that slowly bled and died for sinners like us so that we would have the hope of eternity with him forever. Help us to be mindful of that, Lord. Uh, thank you, Lord, for all of our speakers tonight. Thank you for our worship team. We pray, Lord, that you would work in the hearts and minds of all those who are here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We begin with Luke chapter 23, verse 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought this man, referring to Jesus Christ, to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Luke uses a word here translated having examined. And it carries the idea of having examined very carefully, up and down, thoroughly, finding everything that can be found. He was being examined to see if there's any guilt in him. In addition, it says nothing deserving death has been done by him. Death was the penalty that would have was being looked to be executed if guilt was found as he searched. And so the question comes to mind, how would we measure up to such an examination? Have we done anything worthy of death? And God actually tells us the answer to that in the scriptures. For instance, Psalm 51 tells us that from our conception, our very start, we are sinners. Ephesians 2 describes our sin, us as being dead in our sin, spiritually dead, unable to relate right with God, separated from him by our sin. 
Romans 6 describes us as being slaves to sin, that we are not able not to sin against our Lord. And it goes on later to say that the wages of our sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death in hell. But Jesus, Jesus Christ is completely different than us. Pilate, it says, found no guilt after that thorough examination of Jesus Christ. And Herod had found no guilt. The reason they could find no guilt is because Jesus has none. Jesus is sinless. Now, we might say, but of course he's sinless because he's God and he is God. He's perfect and infinite in his holiness as God. But when he took on humanity, he took on full humanity. But the difference is in his humanity, he had a sinless nature, a perfect nature. And because of that sinless nature, he could not sin and did not sin. Now, he was tempted. The Bible states clearly he was tempted truly, genuinely, fully in every way as we are. But he never sinned. He remained perfectly holy and righteous in his every action, his every word, his every thought, his every attitude of his heart, sinless. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Therefore, I will punish him, Pilate says, and release him. Now, he was obligated to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent, with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. And he released the man they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. But he delivered Jesus to their will. When we read this, we tend to see Barabbas as an extreme scoundrel, a particularly wicked man, and, and in fact, I believe he was. But we also tend to not see that apart from Christ, we are far, infinitely far more like Barabbas than we are like Jesus. Barabbas was a sinner. We are sinners. His deserved wage for his sin, death. Romans 6.23 says, Our deserved wages for our sin, death. But then Barabbas is released because Christ, the sinless one, gets condemned instead. We have a picture here of what Christ is about to go and do, accomplish on that cross. Take the place of sinners. Be the substitute. Satisfy the wrath of God for every person of all time who puts saving faith Christ by God's grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Son 
See the Lamb of God and see the Father's love all to Jesus we owe. He paid it all. All to Jesus. All to Jesus we owe. He paid it all. Our Savior's arms are open wide, a love so great, the cross of After an exhausting week of conflicts with Jewish leaders, Jesus spends an agonizing night sweating great drops of blood, asking his father that his experience would be taken from him. But his disciple Judas leads soldiers to betray him with a kiss. He is kept up all night by being unjustly tried by high priests. Meanwhile, Peter is denying him and Judas hangs himself. In the morning, he endures false accusations, condemnation, mockery, beating, scourging, abandonment, and more unlawful trials. He is then sentenced to death by
by crucifixion. The soldiers spit on him, mock him, and pierce his head with a crown of thorns. But soon the soldiers realize that Jesus is in no condition to carry his cross. Verse 26 says, When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed him on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. Simon is an innocent bystander, yet they make him carry the cross. We learn from Mark that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. They are known to the church at Rome. Perhaps Simon comes to believe in Jesus that day when he is following him, carrying his cross. This calls to mind Jesus' statements, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Amazingly, even now, Jesus is still ministering to people in the crowd. Verse 27 says, And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. Women would follow criminals to their death, crying over them, and no doubt some are especially grieved over what Jesus is going through. But Jesus, in verse 28, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. As he addresses them as the daughters of Jerusalem, Jesus warns them about their future. He doesn't need their sympathy, they need his. He too had wept, but he had not wept over uh, his own condition, but he wept over the inhabitants of Jerusalem knowing that their rejection of their Messiah was going to bring their destruction. During a Passover week just like this one, in 40 years, the Romans would lay siege to the city. Pilgrims gathered would be trapped for five months. The Romans would cut off the supply lines. Many would starve. Some would kill for scraps of food. Others would even eat their children. The walls in the temple will be destroyed. Fires will break out, burning people alive. Many will run for their lives, trampling their friends. They will slaughter the weak and unarmed men, women, and children. Some will be captured and sold into slavery or saved for the arena. It is no wonder that Jesus says in verse 29, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Barrenness was normally seen as a curse in Israel, but women would much rather be barren than to see this happen to their children. The time will be so terrifying that people will wish to die of something more sudden like an earthquake or a landslide. Jesus says in verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Jesus ends this section with the proverbial statement in verse 31, For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? The thought here is based on the fact that green wood does not burn as easily as dry wood. If the Romans have not spared the innocent Jesus, how much more severe will be the fate of guilty Jerusalem? The application for us today is first that a greater judgment is coming when Jesus returns. Those who have not repented and believed in Jesus' sacrifice for their sins will perish and be condemned to suffer forever in hell, a fate much worse than anything these Jews would experience. 
Have you trusted in Jesus? And for us who do believe, are we dying to ourselves and taking up our crosses daily and gladly risking our lives to be associated with Jesus as his disciples?
two others also, who were criminals, were being led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing his garments among themselves. The moment has come for Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, to die. We see in verse 33 that he, along with the criminals, are brought to a place called the skull. In other words, Golgotha or Calvary. They're brought to this place because it is a place of death, a place of execution for criminals. Here, Jesus Christ finds himself willingly undeservedly yet willingly crucifixion of course was terrible and in verse 33 when it says they crucified him there's a lot of details within those three words when it says they crucified him within that is scourging mocking spitting hatred and then when they would arrive at the place of the skull he would be laid down and nails would be driven through his wrists to bear the weight of his body. With each breath, there would be excruciating pain. A nail would then be driven through both of the arches of his feet to hold him up. And eventually, of course, crucifixion would lead to a long, slow, painful, shameful death. And here Jesus, the creator, the Lord of the universe, finds himself wedged between two criminals, crucified on a cross, enduring incredible pain, unimaginable shame with mockers before him, people taking his garments, casting lots. And on top of all that, he was about to endure the wrath of God. And yet, in the midst of all of this, verse 34 shines brightly to me. When we see Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We do not see a Jesus on the cross who is ready to strike down in judgment. We see a Jesus who is ready to forgive. Jesus who is ready to forgive his murderers. This is incredible compassion, astounding, unconditional love, that Jesus would feel compassion to say these things. These people only deserve the wrath of God, and Jesus asks for their forgiveness. This is incredible, but you know what? It's not surprising, because that's why Jesus came. This was his mission, to offer forgiveness to people who don't deserve it. John 3.17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is the posture of Jesus even to the end. This was him carrying his mission to the very end. It was a mission of saving, a mission of forgiveness. Jesus came to earth to die this horrible death so that we could be forgiven. So friends, have you tasted the forgiveness of the Lord? And if you have, tonight is a night worth celebrating. Because it is by his wounds that you are healed. And maybe some of you haven't tasted the forgiveness of Christ. And let me encourage you with this. 
if Jesus, who now if in, in the story's account hangs on the cross, if he gladly offers forgiveness to those who spat on him, to the soldiers who put him there, to the mockers, to the haters of God, to those who murdered him, if he offers forgiveness to them, he offers forgiveness to you. Tonight, we celebrate because it is a night of forgiveness. Jesus came to die, but it is by his death that we live. Jesus, forgive me. God, I fall down to my knees with a hammer in my head. You look at me, arms open, forgiven, forgiven, child.
Oh, there we go. Good. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 23 and verses 35 through 38. And I'll read a couple of verses at a time. And I encourage you to follow along with me. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. For the word for rulers here is a catch-all term that's been used before, but it basically means those, the religious leaders, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. But what I want us to focus on is something very remarkable in this passage. The utter blindness of sinful man is on display right here. In a stroke of sinful irony, these men admitted that Jesus saves. Everyone knew it. They saw Jesus perform miracles. They've even interviewed and interrogated people who were recipients of Jesus' miracles. They've even seen him do them. But yet it wasn't enough. They knew, but they couldn't see the saving work that was being done right before their very eyes. And furthermore, they demanded that Jesus come off the cross, as if that would be the very miracle that would cause them to believe. But the fact of the matter is that they didn't want Jesus as he came. They wanted Jesus on their own terms. For those of us who believe, we understand that the sufferings of Christ were already foretold in the Old Testament Psalms and Daniel, Isaiah, and many others. We know the sacrifices of the Mosaic law point to the sacrifice of Christ, yet the self proclaimed experts of God's word missed it all. They were blind, and that is the effect of sin spiritual blindness. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So I ask you tonight, when you look at the cross, who do you see? Do you see a savior? The one who is here to save sinners? Don't miss it. Verses 36 and 37, the soldiers also mocked him coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Sounds fairly similar to the verse that we just read, except there's a key difference here. Now, before we get to that, I want to say that, as you know, crucifixion is an agonizingly painful and slow death. And sour wine was often given to people who were being crucified, and it acted as a mild painkiller of sorts. It was an act of mercy. But the soldiers here had no mercy in their hearts whatsoever. You see, the Jews scoffed at his claim to be called Messiah. To them, he was a helpless Christ, unable to save himself and therefore unfit to be a savior. The Gentile soldiers mocked him as a helpless king of the Jews, a king without a crown, a king without a kingdom or an army at least that they could see. Again, sin had blinded them to who was right before their eyes. Nevertheless, he is a king. And he died willingly to make us citizens of his eternal kingdom. He could have saved himself, but in so doing, he would never have been able to save anyone else. 
So I ask you tonight, when you look at the cross, do you see a king? A king that can grant you citizenship in his eternal kingdom? Verse 38, last verse. Now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. It's an interesting story behind this sign. When a criminal was executed, it was customary for the governor to put a public proclamation of what that person was being uh, killed for. And the problem here is that Pontius Pilate himself admitted that he couldn't find a crime in Jesus that was worthy of death. So he simply decided to identify Jesus as king of the Jews. And he did it just to stick it to the religious leaders who put him in that position in the first place. The title that Pilate meant for a joke and the soldiers meant for a mockery was the gospel truth. Jesus, the Christ, is the king of the Jews. And not just for the Jews, but for all who would believe. God himself was the one who had this sign put on the cross. It was put there by the love of God. The love for his own son, but the love for us who wants, who God wants us to be saved forever. There are three testimonies in this passage about Jesus. Testimony from the religious leaders, the testimony from the soldiers, and the testimony in the sign. Ironically, the only true testimony here in this passage was the wooden man animate sign. How shameful. So I urge, look to the Savior, believe on him and be saved. Look to the King, pledge allegiance to him and become citizens of the kingdom of light. Read the sign and believe today. Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to live a wretch his treasure, how great the pain of searing loss. The 
Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other responded and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our crimes. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. What a great verse. What I like about this section of scripture, about this unexpected conversion at the cross, is that it provides immense hope to seemingly hopeless sinners. Amen. These verses boldly declare that no person is outside of the life-changing reach of God. God saves hopeless sinners like you and me. And he calls us into a meaningful and eternal relationship with him. You see this criminal, the one that we see here, the one that professed Christ, wasn't just a criminal. But if you read the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, you will see this man while dying on the cross mustered up enough strength to mock, to ridicule, to insult our Lord during one of his darkest moments. So this man was an intense criminal and an intense blasphemer. Yet, yet, as this criminal and this blasphemer was hanging on the cross for six hours, he had the opportunity to observe the sinlessness of Christ. It is undeniable that God was at work in this man's heart. Perhaps this man was included in Jesus's prayer when he cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. It is evident that God drastically changed this man. While on the cross, this man, like you and me, went from a ridiculer of Christ to a defender of Christ. Did this man know every theological factoid? Probably not. But God granted him genuine, life-changing, saving faith. Amen? If you study these verses you will see that they tell us a lot about the criminal's faith. This man, this criminal, this blasphemer, 
through the illuminating and convicting work of the Spirit, now feared God. This criminal now confessed with sin, confessed his sin with sorrow. This criminal now believed that Jesus was sinless. This criminal now trusted that Jesus could save him. This criminal believed that Jesus is the king of heaven. What a miraculous change. But notice, and this is so important, I please, I want you to hear this. Notice how Jesus responds to this man's faith. He responds by saying this, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gives assurance of salvation to all those who genuinely believe. He gives assurance to this criminal, and he gives assurance to all believers. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I give them, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Brothers and sisters, friends, guests, undoubtedly, this section of scripture serves as a bright ray of hope to all seemingly hopeless sinners. So if you are here tonight and you're not following Jesus, please, please know that God's grace is sufficient to cover your sin. Jesus bore the judgment of Rome. He bore the judgment of God so that criminals can live. Surrender your life to Christ with genuine faith and repentance, and he will forgive you of your sins and give you the assurance of heaven. To the believer, to my brothers, to my sisters, to me, remember, we too once rejected God. We too were once unforgiven criminals. Yet, brothers and sisters, through the work of the Holy Spirit, God granted us faith and the ability to follow him. Amen? How awesome is that, that he would do that for us, that he would miraculously change our hearts. These spiritual realities ought to prompt us to tell others about our glorious Savior and to live for him, to obey him with a joyful heart. So as we reflect on these verses, let's continue to worship our great Savior, a Savior that has given immense hope to criminals through his sacrificial death. Amen. Stand accused by mighty prayers, and the devil roars his empty threats. I will preach the gospel to myself that I am not a man condemned by righteousness. My sin is nailed to the cross. My soul is. By the stars, my fate of guilt, I bear.
privilege of taking on the last section in scripture here in Luke chapter 23, and it is the physical death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 44 reads this way, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. There's two things in this verse I want to just highlight briefly is First, you'll notice that it talks about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. This would be around noon to three. Can you imagine hanging on a cross in this weather, stripped down, bleeding out, mocked and scorned? This whole darkness, many people have made uh, false assumptions of this passage in a lot of ways. There are some that say this was some kind of payment to Satan, and that's a lie. Satan had no control of what was going on. Some believe that God had turned his back completely on his son and had exited. And that true, that is no longer, that is not true either. The fact is, what we find is this darkness came from God. 
darkness has always been associated with judgment. Those who knew their Bible, those Jews that are around the cross and in that area, would have known that God in Exodus 10 brought darkness onto the land for judgment. Brothers and sisters, God was unleashing judgment on his son. He was bringing the full wrath of God upon his son for you and I. This darkness is associated with the presence of God, not with his absence. God is there judging his son on our behalf. Mark chapter 15, verse 34 says, In the ninth hour that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As this time comes to an end of this darkness, the Lord felt the final weight of the judgment of his father upon him. And he felt the barrenness he felt the darkness. He felt the heaviness of our sin upon him. The second aspect of this verse here is I believe at the end of that time of darkness, judgment, God proved that Jesus stood the test. God proved he was impeccable. God proved he was the final lamb. No more blood from any other lambs would have to come before him. He was it. It was finished. And in that moment, notice in the text in verse 45, the latter part of that text, the veil was torn in two. The proof that God tore the veil in the separation between God and man was done. For thousands of years, man could not come into the presence of God. They always had to come to a mediator through the blood of something else. But now the Lord Jesus Christ, his blood, would bring us into the very presence of God. And the veil was torn. All of the Old Testament was pointing towards this moment. From Genesis 3.15, where God promised to crush the head of the serpent, all of the Old Testament passages were pointing to this moment when that veil would be torn and you and I could come stand in the presence of God Almighty through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a massive moment in history. This is a moment where our sins are no longer counted against us and applied to us at salvation because God made a way. Notice verse 46. His work is complete now, and Jesus cries out with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last John 19.30 tells us it was here where Jesus Christ cried out, it's finished. Notice the phrase, into your hands I have committed my spirit. Here it tells us that the Lord himself in all his agony and all that he was going through on our behalf was still in control. He still had control of his life. And there he said, it's done, Lord. I commit I myself commit my spirit to you, Lord. And he bows his head. The gospel of God was complete. This was the promise. There will be one who will come, the greater prophet, the greater king, greater in all ways, and he will satisfy my wrath. And so the gospel of God was complete. The relationship, the relationship between the father and son was completely restored at that moment. All things were right. All things have been taken care of.
As I studied this text, I looked at this little phrase, he breathed his last. That was it. All from the foundations of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ took his last gaps. The wages of sin were finished. There was nothing left to do but die. Here our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend dies for our sins. Verse 47 gives evidence of change in people's life. It says, now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Isn't it interesting how many people proclaimed the innocence of Jesus Christ, and yet they all had their hand in his death. The Bible says, thus centurion, there's an article here, it's delineating, this was a commander of, of possibly hundreds of soldiers. And he had seen Christ forgive killers. He had seen a, a thief saved. He had seen a, a son care for his earthly mother. He had never returned evil for evil while hanging on that cross. He had never uttered threats when he was threatened. And he had been addressing his father the whole time. The centurion was moved to make this bold claim that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He could not be a liar. He had to be innocent. And that proclamation was written in several of our gospel accounts. Think about this. The sovereignty of God leads a panthistic, a, a, a Roman soldier who believed in the plurality of gods, brought him to believe in the living and true God as he looked at Jesus Christ. Verse 48 says, all the crowd who came together for this spectacle, they, they had, when they observed what had happened, they began to return and beating their breast. The crowd praised him at his triumphal entry just a week earlier. They witnessed his miracles and teachings in Jerusalem just that week. And possibly they were part of the crowd that, crawled, that cried out, crucify him. But now they leave in complete humiliation. The term to beat the breast means I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm humiliated. There was no, this was no ordinary crucifixion. This was the death of our Savior. <coughs> and finally, in verse 49, and all his acquaintances and the, and the women who accompanied him from Galilee, they were standing at a distance, seeing these things. I love this last verse because it tells us there was eyewitnesses. Were eyewitnesses. They were there. They were there um, at the cross, and they were there at the beginning, the, the birth of the church. And now the word of God has made you a witness to the gospel. You have heard the inspired, uh, uh, inerrant, infallible word of God remind you of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. His work is complete. His work needs nothing added to it. And I would encourage you today, if you're here and you think somehow that you should be accepted by God because of your good moral standing or anything you have done, I would beg and plead with you to reject that thinking. That's deadly thinking. We come to Jesus Christ with empty hands of our works. Only with our sins do we come needing his salvation. Let's sing one more song and then we'll be closed.
just a little reminded this evening that we live in a very great life of comfort, don't we? And yet we think about our Lord 2,000 years ago, there was nothing, nothing comfortable about what he went through. Are you so glad that our Lord died for us? That's what Good Friday's about. It was a good Friday, wasn't it? It was good what the Lord did, and yet it was so costly so glad you came out. We're going to do this again. If we're not crazy enough tonight, we're going to do this again on Sunday morning. It could be just me and the band, but I hope a few of you come out. Um, we are going to meet here 6.30 a.m. It's going to be hopefully a little warmer. The breeze is supposed to knock down, and we're going to remember the resurrection uh, in the morning of, of Easter. And so we invite you to come out, and then that, uh, that later that morning at 10.45, we are going to have our service uh, here at the church, a great time of music and worship and, and a time in the word again. So please come out. Let me close in prayer. Then I want you to stand up and hug somebody <laughs> and get warm. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the, all of the men who shared and studied, Lord. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for this text. Thank you for the word of God that reminds us of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he accomplished everything. We do not have to add to his work. Lord, woe is us if we try to add to what he has done. May we be worshipers of what he has done. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for us. May you hear our songs and our preaching today, and may it brought glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. We'll see you Sunday morning. <laughs>